Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon. I'm here with John Kaplan, who's been doing his breath work. He's operating at a higher brain level. The big, the one, the only John Kaplan. How are you, bud? Everything I'm doing good? great, buddy. I'm <clears throat> doing great. Feeling great about our guest today, brother. Fantastic guest. So, Cap, our guest is an accomplished business operator, started his career as a sales rep, and then quickly rose into management at PTC. After PTC, he went to RSA, the security division of EMC Dell, where he rose through the ranks to become the VP of Worldwide Sales. Mark then moved to become the senior vice president of global sales of VCE. And from VCE, he joined Click as the CRO. After Click, Mark became the chief operating officer at Turbonomics, which was acquired by IBM. And currently, Mark is the chief operating officer at Tenable, where his responsibilities include worldwide sales, partner in strategic alliances, customer success, and marketing operations. Cap, say hello to my good friend, the consummate professional, and I have to mention the dedicated Boston Bruins and New England Patriots fan, Mark Thurman. Hey, buddy. Um, it's really, really great to see you. Johnny, Mark is one of my favorite leaders on the planet. I got Tremendous amount of respect for Mark and I me, mean, dude. You've been doing it for a long, long time and oh. getting better every year, turning out results every year. So I'm really, really ecstatic to have you with our audience today. Thanks for being here, bud. Hey, listen, it is fantastic to be here with two folks that I consider friends and mentors. And um, yeah, it's phenomenal to see the success that both of you folks have had and be able to have a conversation. Uh, with the two Johns is absolutely my pleasure. It's great to be yeah. with you folks. Yeah. Let's have a little bit of fun. So Mark, you've been highly successful moving your way up, you know, in the sales ranks and for, you know, some of our listeners that are, you know, in the sales rep ranks, what were some of the lessons you learned along the way that, you know, you'd share with others that are trying to make the same, same moves up, up the ladder? Yeah, no, no question. So, and there's been a lot of, them, right. I, I think when I, when I look back to those early days, just kind of getting into sales and starting my career off, especially at PTC, right? There were some basic foundational kind of building blocks that just tried to expand upon as I've gone through my career, right? The first one that I took and, and learned a lot of lessons at PTC, the first one was about communication, right? And I think I'll use, you know, both you individuals, but especially you, John McMahon, in regard to communicating and trying to be a communicator that simplifies messaging and strategy and execution. It was really one of the first things I've learned early in my career was the leaders that could actually truly impact and simplify messaging, positioning, metrics, and strategy 
they were the ones that actually drove the most productive teams. So kind of early in my career, communication was a massive big part of kind of the foundation of, of building my, my career and the characters that I wanted to follow throughout my career. The second big one, which my dad used this term all the time, is hard work is the great equalizer. And I know it sounds corny, but it has stuck with me for my entire life. And it is truly proven both in athletics and in business that hard work is the, the great equalizer. I would see people early in my career at PTC that would literally do seven, 18 hours a day. They would study, they would get enabled, they would spend time with customers, with partners, with executives and mentors and learning. And I truly, there were many people that were far more intelligent than I was ever going to be. But I literally would come in there with this attitude about I am going to outwork and out hustle every single one of these folks. And as I've grown in my career, that has stuck with me. But now it is one of the biggest things I look for from recruiting and building the next future leaders and the next sales managers and the next sales rep. That has been a lesson that started early in my childhood, but has absolutely stuck with me, you know, for my entire career, without a doubt. Yeah, because we've all seen the people that we've even recruited that might have even aced their SATs. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, they just weren't they weren't trying hard. Yeah. They were just thinking they could skate by. And then to your point, the hard work, I don't even know if it was the equalizer. It would surpass yeah. You know, yeah. the intelligence levels that some people had just because you worked hard and were dedicated. You learn more, actually. Yeah, no question. And, and the two other attributes that I'll let's add on to that. And it goes along that hard work theme is trying to become, even if you didn't get into technology, if you weren't in computer science or you weren't in cyber or infrastructure, is really trying to improve yourself to become a subject matter expert. I think in today's selling environment, becoming an SME and really being able to explain your technology, being able to go deep on the technology, talking about those positive business outcomes and all the different things that we do around, you know, MedPick and command the message. But I, all, I, I found that the, the, the folks that take that really serious in the beginning parts of their career with the enablement, the training and becoming an SME, it truly allowed them to kind of be big differentiators. And then the last point is the mentors, right? This is something that I, I talked to a lot of the new hires is, and I, I was lucky enough in my career to, to find a few, but being able to find someone that's been there and done it at scale that can check their ego at the door and have very open and transparent conversations about what it takes to be successful, how you problem solve, how you deal with really complex emotional situations with employees and other leaders, you know, was started my PTC career and, you know, something that I'm a massive believer in today. So those are kind of the four major kind of building blocks and some of the lessons I learned early in the, the, the days of PTC. Yeah. And then I want to, I want to go back to one of them or two of them really, because they're tied together. You know, you want to become a subject matter expert in your product, but at the same time, going back to your first point, you want to be able to go deep, but you want to be able to simplify it too for customers Absolutely. so that they understand and grasp the concept of what you're talking about before you dive into the details. You and I know a lot of people that <laughs> just dive straight into the details, but they never give the customer the yeah. simple conceptual explanation of where they're going to go. Absolutely true. Yeah. No, it's been, listen, it's been one of the, the biggest things I give a call out to cap, you know, and all the work that I've done with force management rolled them out in four different organizations. And I think what, 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 what John Kaplan and the force management team do that is truly at the essence is they allow you to bring 
the company together, not just sales, the company together and allow you to simplify your message, your positioning, your inspection of the business. So you have a common language that everyone gets and it is truly simplified. And that is how you take really complex technologies, whether it's infrastructure or cyber, and be able to have folks come on board, ramp quickly, become productive quickly. It is all about that simplification messaging. I want to go Mark, back to it. Oh, oh, sorry, Johnny, one more. I want to go back yeah. to the mentor piece because I get pounded on LinkedIn with people that are asking for someone to be a mentor. And I always wonder, well, what kind of company do you work at if you can't yeah. look around the company and find a mentor? And maybe they can't inside their own company. But is there any advice you'd give to young salespeople about where to look or how to how to find or how to talk someone into being a, a mentor of yours? A hundred percent. And I'll give you a couple. I'll give you a great example. Right. Is, is you want to look when you're in a company, especially if you're starting your career, you want to look for folks in leadership positions that you want to emulate that you want to understand how they do certain things because your experience level isn't there yet to maybe understand the strategy of a global go-to-market or the strategy of releasing a brand new product. But you want to team up with people and learn from people that you admire, that you respect, and that have kind of shown you how to do it within the organization. And you've been able to articulate that and been able to actually go out and deliver those messages, deliver those themes in a succinct manner. And I use this term all the time, being a squeaky wheel. People love, I get the same request all the time. I, I'm flattered when people reach out to me and say, hey, can I get 30 minutes? Can you be my mentor? You know, how do you want to structure it? And I did that when I was at EMC, right? So Joe Tucci was the CEO of EMC, unbelievably uh, powerful, you know, leader of at that time, a Fortune 100 company. And the way he would communicate and lead people, I admired more than anything. And I reached out to him and said, Today, Mark Thurman, we kind of knew each other based on some of the businesses we're doing together at AMC. And I said, I would love just to get an hour once a quarter. And that hour once a quarter with Joe turned into a couple hours every month. And they were the most insightful learning experiences that I had had in my entire career. And I've learned from other great leaders, but that's a great example of being a squeaky wheel. Don't be afraid or intimidated. Be able to set up a really good, clean structure. And Joe was awesome. Joe Joe would say, hey, listen, these aren't, you know, we're going to sit there and pontificate about the meaning of life. He's like, come right. to these mentoring sessions with three problems you're wrestling with. And he's like, we're in the cone of silence, so I'm not going to go back to your boss or your leader or anyone, but three problems that you're struggling with. And if I've seen that problem before, let's brainstorm it out. Let's discuss it. Let's have a discussion. And he said, when you leave these sessions, hopefully you have some good notes of how to solve and maybe look at these problems differently. And that's the way I do it. So when I do a mentoring session, I'm like, bring me three problems. We're going to brainstorm it. It's the cone of silence. And hopefully when that mentoring session, you know, we finish that and we exit, there's some good action items and follow up that the other folks can actually go tackle. So, yeah. Really good. Really good, Mark. Cap, you wanted to ask a question. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, Mark, I've always been impressed at your ability to recruit through the noise of or the balance of we have to have subject matter experts. Uh, they have to have, you know, they have to be cyber experts, especially in cyber. Like now that you, yeah. you, you've spent just probably just as much time in cyber now as you spent in, you know, non-cyber in the beginning yeah. of your, in the beginning of your career. 
And I've always been impressed in how you've been able to simplify the knowledge and the skills that are required so you can go and hire thoroughbred. So I'd like you to talk yep. a little bit about that. I think you call it the three H's. Yep. Like you have, you have a concept called the three H's. Yep. And then you assume the responsibility as the company to say, look, we have to provide them certain knowledge yep. and skills. But if they have the three H's that make up the character part of the equation, you've yep. been very successful of kind of fighting through that, you know, dilemma of we have to have people want to talk to people that come from the same backgrounds or what have yeah. you. Could you speak a little bit to that? Sure. Cause I think it's yeah. a major stumbling block for some leaders. Yeah. And it is, and it's especially a problem in cyber, right? Our customers have the same issues. There's not enough cyber expertise out there, right. To solve some yeah. of these big issues that everyone is wrestling with. But yeah, when, when I look at recruiting and again, we all kind of came up through the same methodologies and we all talk about recruiting and revenue and retention. So we all have the same acronyms, right? Um, but one of the things I do follow from a recruiting perspective and I do three H's, right? It's called the head, the heart and hard work ethic, right? So keep it really simple and basic. And when I recruit, I look for the head, which is obviously the intellect, the intelligence, right? Can they understand the technology? Can they articulate what is going on in the customer environment? And do they really have the intelligence level to be successful selling really complex software. So that's the first thing. And there's a bunch of questions I use to kind of test that. The second thing is the heart, right? And this comes into the passion, the enthusiasm, the energy level, right? The kind of compete that they are going to do everything humanly possible to win. And they're going to be passionate and enthusiastic on every step of the process, right? I don't want anyone that is low energy, that is negative, you know, that is full of drama. I want those folks out of my companies, out of my life. There's no room for that to be running in a successful organization. You can't have that, right? So you got the head, the heart. And the last one is what I talked about. And I always come back to this. My kids are so sick of it, but it's the hard work. It is the work ethic in the simple, you know, being able to get an understanding of where people came from, their backgrounds, their struggles in life. And I literally asked this interview question. I said, when have you been either outsmarted or you have a person you're competing with in a sport, right? So athletically, they were superior, but you outwork them. Walk me through that. And when I hear folks that can't even articulate how and where that happened, I'm like, have they really been through the struggle? You know, to use a, a, a cap term, have they been through the glass? Like, have they been through a really tough time where they've been able to outwork and out hustle either, you know, their peers or their competition, and so those are the three attributes. And there's a whole bunch of questions that I use to go through that. And then once I have the right candidate, then it is truly upon the company. And again, awesome PTC culture. I have enablement. The function of enablement reports directly into me. And it has reported into me for the last three senior C roles I have had. And so I'm a chief operating officer at Tenable, which is a publicly traded company. And enablement reports into me. And everyone always asks me, why enablement? And I'm like, it is honestly maybe the most important function that a company has is to be able to train and enable and make sure that you have the most technically competent sellers and SEs and channel engagement partners and professional services on the planet. And then you want to be able to teach them some of the other skills in regard to being successful. Things, you know, that force management teaches around command of the message or command of the plan. But being able to have that group trained and enabled where we, I use this term a bit, it's not micromanagement, but the sense of urgency we have around enablement is almost as close 
to the sense of urgency we have around forecasting, mm-hmm. right? I, in my leadership, we look at who's doing the training, have they completed it, how they scored out, and we don't do it to micromanage. We do it because we feel like if you're trained and enabled and you're confident and you're comfortable, you will be an unbelievably successful salesperson and leader. And so I take it as a, a, as a personal uh, mission of mine, because that's kind of, I think, how I was able to be a little bit successful in my career, was being able to take the training, the enablement, and being able to execute and learn new spaces, new industries. And I think it's a huge differentiator. And it's a big differentiator for Tenable. It allows us to recruit and bring people in because they know they're going to get world-class training. Yeah. And in addition to that, you know, your product always changes, the market changes, the competitors change, the messaging changes. And if you're not constantly training your sales force, they're being obsoleted by definition. So I, I really didn't, don't understand it when enablement doesn't report to the CRO. It drives me crazy. Me too. I mean, I've seen it a few times, John, like where it's tucked in to sales operations and nothing against sales operations. I love it. My sales ops guy, Vincent Moran is one of the greatest leaders on my team, but I don't want the sales ops leader to drive and dictate and structure training and enablement to my sales force, my partner community, our ecosystem. That to me is one of my biggest responsibilities as a chief operating officer. And I, I take it extremely serious. And yeah, it's uh, something that I get kind of blown away all the time when I'm like, well, how can't you be involved in that every day? you know, uh, is, is kind of blows my mind a little bit, to be honest with you. Right. Cause you I don't train. know what they're being, you know, you don't know what they're being trained on hundred percent. Yeah. You lose control. And, and again, if you're in tune with your, your customer base and you're in tune with your partner community, you're in tune with what needs to be modified and simplified and how that messaging and positioning needs to be tweaked and modified. So then you can train the masses. And we've been very busy at Tenable buying and acquiring companies. And so when we buy a new company, we have to have a total new enablement track to be able to take those technologies so our sellers, our RSEs, and our partner community can then be able to go talk about those technologies. And so it's just, it's so critical. It's so important. It's, you know, I make this point all the time when I talk to young up and coming leaders about how serious they need to think about, you know, structuring their enablement program. Yeah. One of the so. things that I love about actually both you guys, because, you know, Mark, I think we saw John, McMahon do this at PTC where he made training a priority. We were getting trained every quarter sure. and it was so incredible. We were, we were by far the best trained uh, selling machine on the planet back in the day. Let me talk about you for a second. One of the things I really love about you is like when, when my company has worked with you, you were always the barometer and because it reported up to you, you always had this barometer of, simplifying and removing obstacles for your team. And I actually think you call it removing the friction. You didn't want to build up any cholesterol for the organization. And it was on you to make sure not somebody else's interpretation. You were responsible for removing the friction. Could you talk a little bit about your, what you mean by that removing the friction? Yeah. And I mean, literally it's, it's funny. Just coming out of some QBRs here in, in, in Maryland and it's down in, Argentina and Brazil last week, visiting customers and doing a bunch of keynote presentations. And when I get my team together and I get the partner community together, the first thing I I ask, I literally, I say, what friction is in the system that I can help solve? And then I decompose that. I say, okay, literally, what is slowing you down Monday through Friday that is preventing you from talking to your customers and your partners and driving higher levels of productivity? 
Then I break it down to what is happening in sales ops, right? What is happening in the partner ecosystem? What is happening in the messaging and positioning of the technology? What is happening on the product side? So this is one of the areas that I, I do tend to spend a lot of time in the weeds. I do tend to spend a lot of time in the details because when you're removing friction, you know, for a, a thousand person plus organization, if you're not living it every day, if you don't understand it, if you don't understand how maybe, you know, you have 15 different fields in Salesforce that don't need to be clicked and it's causing every seller 30 minutes, I can't go to my Salesforce administrator and say, hey, I want those, those, those windows locked out. I don't want to be able to have that option. I want to be able to, instead of having 40 different options in Salesforce, I want 14. I want my sellers in front of customers and in front of partners. How do you do that? And so I do spend a huge amount of time and it is, you know, when I go into a QBR and as we're digging into the business, my, my tagline is what friction is out there and then how can I solve it? And I think that's, you know, again, lessons I've learned through different mentors and different leaders, you know, they're the folks taking action and they're the folks that are improving productivity and improving, you know, the, the experience at the company, you know, for the sellers. Well, you hit on it. Removing obstacles makes your whole sales force a lot more productive. And that's what your job is, is trying to increase productivity of your sales force. So yep, 100%. It's, it's critical. It, it, it's everything. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Mark, you've talked about, you know, command and control leadership versus what you call influential leadership. Can you explain what you mean by that and why that's yeah. so important to you? Definitely. And again, this, I'll go back to Joe Tucci. Um, this was one of the aha moments during our mentoring sessions where it was never, ever explained to me the way Joe put it. And again, EMC was a massive, you know, 40, $50 billion company. We acquired a hundred companies in a nine year period. So very complex reporting structures and BUs. And, you know, Joe would talk about different leadership styles. And he sat down with me one day and I was getting frustrated because we had acquired a few companies at RSA and I wanted those to report directly into me day one. And I wanted to be able to do command and control, meaning I'm the general. Here's what you need to do, A, B, C, and D. And if you don't do it, there's going to be ramifications. Right. And Joe sat me down. He's kind of like, how do I put it? He's kind of like, take it easy, gun smoke. <laughs> relax a little bit. Yeah. Take okay. a breath. Exactly. <laughs> take a deep breath. Just relax. Look on you know, the top of the perch and look down and relax. And he said, here's the deal. <laughs> He said, command and control leadership is the most easy leadership there is. He said, when you're like the military, you're on a sports team, and there's one general, there's one head coach, it's very easy to lead that team, lead that organization, because you lay out the rules, and they have to follow them. If they don't, there's repercussions. And he said the biggest evolution that Joe Tucci had in his career, and then the leaders around him, was developing this command and control leadership style. Meaning, as you progress in an organization, as you move up in, in large organizations, you are not going to control all the functions. You are not going to have all of the um, opportunity to do command and control for all these different BUs. You have to influence. You have to lead by influencing other folks. And that's hard, right? Yeah. Like if they don't report to you, but you need to get something out of them. An example is if you're a CRO and marketing doesn't report into you and there's a CMO, you have to be able to influence that CMO on how you want to go drive pipeline, on how you want to manage, you know, SQLs and MQLs, on how you want to manage the positioning. You can't go in there and say, you do A, B, C, and D because you report to me. 
You have to say, hey, man, we are in this together, right? We are one team, one fight. Here are the things that we think we need from a go-to-market and we need marketing to help support us in these three areas. What do you think? Do you agree? Do you buy it? And being able to build on that was truly eye-opening. And a big part of my career was managing acquisitions and managing a bunch of companies that we acquired and I could never use command and control. And so when Joe sat down and walked me through that, and then he used an example of one of the folks that he was mentoring, a guy named David Goulden, who ended up becoming CEO of EMC, unbelievably intelligent, super smart guy. And he said, he's the perfect example. And he was a CFO. He was a CRO. He managed product. He had all these different functions that reported into Dave at one point. But Joe pointed out Dave Goulden saying he is a master at command and control, right? Orgs don't report into him, but he manages them. He leads them and he gets the outcome he needs by influential leadership. And so that's something that, that I think about constantly as we're acquiring companies and we're dealing with partners and I'm dealing with people that don't directly report to me. Super important muscle that up and coming leaders need to develop. Yeah. You know, I've, I've called it positional power versus persuasive power. You know, positional power, someone working for you, they're going to do what you tell them to do in exchange mm -hmm. for money or some sense of reward and not to get punished. Yep. But when you explain things more from a persuasive power, you know, and you kind of get them to understand what's in it for them to do what you need them to do. Yep, absolutely. That's a lot more powerful and that's a lot more lasting and it changes the relationship that you have with people. So no people question. don't always respond to positional power or what you called, you know, command and control leadership. Yep. What we've yep. also no talked about with a number of leaders uh, since starting this podcast is in, in order to do what you just explained, John, and what you're talking about, Mark, is you, it, it's, you have to begin with the why. So everybody's been talking about beginning with the why and then the what and the how are, you know, just kind of, they just kind of fall in place. But yeah. have you found the same thing, Mark? In, in, yeah. in order to do what you're talking about doing, you have to be really good at, at, at explaining the why to people. Absolutely. Get them no. emotionally connected to the why. No question about it. And I'll give you a great example, right? So, you know, we have acquired a bunch of companies, as I've stated here at Tenable, um, in the time period I've been here. And so when we acquire a new company, you know, they're very much measured on a plan of record, meaning they've got to do a certain amount of bookings and sales and revenue and new customers. And so when I sit down with them and, and you know, they're a CEO, they might still be reporting not into me as CEO, or they still might be reporting into our CEO, a meet you're on. But I'll sit down and talk to them and say, hey, listen, if we want to be able to be successful and we want to crush your plan of record, right? Here's why we need to enable your product to be sold through the channel. Here's why we need to simplify some of your messaging because all my core sellers around the globe might not know your technology in and out. So if we simplify it, they can go talk to their install base that's 70, you know, 70 companies deep. You know, we need to simplify the message and positioning so, you know, our marketing team can articulate what the value is when they're doing different marketing events instead of just talking about potentially core-based, risk-based vulnerability management. So that why cap is everything. Because once they see like, wow, we're on the same team, he or she is helping me as a leader deliver my results. And even though this person is not my direct boss, I want those results that they're describing. And if I do A, B, C, and D, like they're recommending, and again, you have to have credibility. You have to be able to have done it before. You have to follow up and do the action items and show them execution. Then they follow you. Then the journey becomes really simple. And I don't, I honestly do not care 
who reports to me on an org chart. I say it all the time. I'm going to get out of those individuals that don't report to me what I need to be successful to make them successful, to make me successful. And the most important thing to make tenable successful, right? Company comes first, your people come second, yourself come third. You want to make sure that you're bringing those people and explaining the why as you, you know, work with them very, very closely. But M&A is a perfect example where influential leadership comes to play. I see it. Uh, you know, I, I've read it this way. I feel it in my bones too, is that the greatest leaders I've ever seen are the ones that really focus on validating conviction versus compliance. If you are yeah. a leader that you're, you need command and control because you lead through compliance versus you have influential leadership and you're leading through conviction, you can, yeah. you can just feel it in your bones. And I, I really feel like in today's environments that are out there, those are the leaders that are really, really excelling right now. Yep. No, couldn't agree more without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, especially with this, you know, the, the pandemic, the post pandemic, you know, and all the different communications that we're doing via Zoom and now back to face to face. And you can really kind of see these authentic leaders that have authenticity that are now back out in front of the troops, back out in front of customers and partners. And there's still this few folks that are still kind of hugging to Zoom and not really out there leading from the front and getting deep into the details. And, you know, I think some of those leaders are going to be exposed. And so I, I could not agree more with your statement. And it, it is more relevant now um, based on where we are as a society than, it, than, than it, it ever has been. Which also brings me to a point of with all those things, outside influences that you just talked about, I've heard you talk a lot about you have become a more patient leader, starting with kind of your international experience, which is very vast. You have a vast international experience. And I think I heard you talk about one time on a, another podcast that that's where you started to develop this muscle around patience. And yep. it's, it's probably developed more and more and more. If we were to describe ourselves back in the day, brother, back, you know, back <laughs> at VTC, I don't know if that's how we would describe ourselves, but would you talk yeah. a little bit about that concept of patience? Yeah, definitely. I love it. It was, it was one of the funnest funnest parts of my career, right? So very early at PTC, um, you know, based on, you know, a lot of support from, from Brian Halligan, um, from Dick Harrison, um, from John, I had the opportunity really, really at a young age to move over to New Zealand and started uh, international assignment in New Zealand and Auckland, and then got promoted over to run Southeast Asia and lived in Indonesia for a couple of years. Uh, then got asked to go over to Germany and lived in, in Central Europe, living in Munich. Um, in Schwabing, beautiful part of, of downtown Munich in Germany. And so what I was able to learn is, A, gave me a true appreciation for patience and for culture and understanding how business gets done in different countries. And this is something that I think a lot of people don't realize as they're coming up in their careers. They think that everything can be somewhat cookie cutter based on what corporate is saying. And when you actually live overseas and you live in these local countries and what I call boots on the ground and understand the nuances and how things get done and how you communicate with customers and partners and sometimes taking a step back. And a lot of times, literally, I would be in meetings where they wouldn't be, they weren't speaking English. And I was chomping at the bit. I was young and aggressive and intense and I wanted to add value to the meeting, but I had to take a deep breath. I had to say, okay, let the locals talk in local language. Don't be insulting. Let them get the point across. 
I'll try to confirm some points at the end of the meeting. But taking that step back gave me, A, a true creation on how to run and manage and lead a global business. But it also gave me an appreciation when I am at corporate to always listen to the local leaders, the boots on the ground, to be able to make decisions. Uh, the one thing I'll add, Cap, because I know a lot of what your podcast is about is giving advice to future leaders, especially as we're coming out of the pandemic. I would recommend to anyone that is aggressive and career-oriented at a young age, get that international experience, mm. right? Like be a risk taker, right? It would have been easy for me, 26, 27, whenever it was to say, nope, I want to stay in Boston. I'm comfortable. But, you know, by doing that, it was arguably some of the best moves I've ever had in my entire life and my career. And I did it at a young age, which gives me a better appreciation for how to manage as I get older and, and get different roles in my career, Take chances, experience those local cultures, experience how business gets done at that different pace, understand the nuances of messaging and positioning, product feature and function based on the local country, unbelievably valuable. And I, I don't see as many people, and obviously the pandemic had a huge, you know, obviously uh, it caused a huge challenge, but now that we're coming out, I, I've gotten a few phone calls of folks saying, should I do it? You know, should I do that international assignment? Should I do that big move? And I'm like, absolutely, go for it. Do it for two years. You know, most of them end up staying longer, but it is an amazing experience. I would not trade that for any experience I've had in business. Yeah, I think all three of us have had great. I mean, John met his future wife um, uh, on his international assignment. And and I think all three of us had just had great experience. I was in Central Europe and then was responsible for Europe and Asia out of that location and had a five-year stint. You know, what's amazing, though, Mark, is, and maybe you can give some advice around this, is that I think companies, they mess this up a little bit. So we're encouraging people that are listening to take the risk. But the data yeah. says that it, it's, it's really high. It's like 80% plus of those people that go and take that risk, they never repatriate back with the same company. And I don't know what your experience was. If you came yeah. back to the United States, if you came back with PTC or did you go to another company? Yeah. Um, most expats, most expats, the data says they do not repatriate, meaning they do not, they, when they come back, they, mm -hmm. the, you know, the, Time doesn't wait for anybody, so they yeah. lose their they lose their connections to corporate and and I just think that's a I've always thought that that was just a huge loss of resource. You get an unbelievably experienced person, and people just weren't thinking about it on the way on making sure they come back. Would you comment yeah. on that a little bit about sure. what your experience is and then advice yeah. that you could give for both companies and the individuals yeah. that are repatriating back? Yeah. So, so, so two things, right. Uh, is, and I'll comment on that is I do think it's, it's the company plays a huge role and should be responsible to actually communicate the expectations, communicate the timeline and absolutely be able to say when you're ready to come back, when we all mutually agree, there'll be a role, right. It might not be the most ideal, perfect role because it's timing. We can't predict what the market, what the company is going to be like in two years, but there will absolutely be a role for you after you've learned all this great international experience. And so I do think it is incumbent upon the company. I will tell you though, right? It absolutely opens up avenues and doors for the person that becomes the expat. So yeah. to your point, right? How I got recruited to EMC was through, when I was living over in Germany, there's a gentleman named Billy Scannell. 
who yeah. is arguably the goat of the well, John McMahon is the true uh, enterprise software goat. Yeah. But Billy Scano is the goat of infrastructure and storage. And no doubt. He's an incredible leader. And he was living in Ireland and, and myself and a good friend of all of ours, John Hanlon, you know, met up with Billy in Ireland. And Billy said, we need software sellers. EMC at that time was a $250 billion company. And Billy Scano recruited both Johnny and I to join EMC. And I had a 15-year run at EMC. Right. So, oh, so you actually, I didn't realize that you didn't repatriate back with PTC. You, you no, can, I actually went, I, I left yeah. PTC and, and went on and got recruited by Billy, um, who is, who is an amazing, amazing leader. And that's how I ended up at EMC for 15 years. Wow. And so one of the things that it allowed me though, would, would, I think attracted Billy scandal and then the rest of EMC was the global experience because they yeah. wanted global software sellers, right? Some of the roles that I ended up moving into, uh, managing the Centera business line or the RSA business or VCE, the reason I was able to get those roles was because I had that global experience and had lived in, in those countries and, you know, I think could hopefully give some good direction and leadership. But yeah, that, that's kind of how I ended up um, at, at EMC. And so I, I do think, and at that time, PTC was going through a lot of change, right? There's a lot yeah. of executive changeover. There wasn't the consistency. And for all the strengths that PTC had, I don't think bringing expats back to the U.S. at that time was high on the priority list and they didn't prioritize it. And they maybe didn't have as much structure as I think you need in today's you know, business environment. Yeah. One last follow up on this, on the yeah. international experience. Um, some of the best advice that I got before um, I went over in, and it kind of manifested itself in different ways is <clears throat> When Americans go across the globe, um, it's always, I guess it's anywhere. It's its probably, it, it, it doesn't matter if it's Americans. It's wherever you go to a culture that's not your native culture. The advice was be the same before you establish your difference. Be the same before you establish your difference. And what that meant to yeah. me was, is to really put in the time and effort to understand um, the culture to understand from, from someone's point of view, that's thousands of miles away from corporate headquarters or what have yeah. you. And I think there's a balance between that of being the same before you're different. And then also just going native, what I used to call going native for people. Yeah. And when they say, well, it's different here in XYZ geography or what have you, and it's a really fine balance, but yeah. I just think if people go in with that kind of mindset, did you experience the same thing? Yeah, definitely. Listen, it, it goes back to you, you, you have to be authentic, right? No matter where you are in the globe, no matter what role you are in, people see, see authenticity. And especially that time, I was, and I still am, a little bit high energy. I love to be involved in the details. Um, I, I can be quite passionate at times. And I didn't change those behaviors when I was, you know, either living in Indonesia or going off and, and doing QBRs in the Philippines or Malaysia or Thailand or living in Germany. But I would slow down. And what yeah. I did spend more time on, Cap, was I would explain the method to my madness in a lot more detail when I was overseas and say, hey, here's why I'm approaching it this way. Here's why, why I'm digging in and ask you the questions. I'm not doing this to embarrass anyone. I'm not doing this to micromanage. I'm doing it because I need to understand what the issues and challenges are so that I can you know, be that driving force to get these issues taken care of at corporate or with a customer or with a partner. And so I still came in with energy and enthusiasm and passion, 
But I did. A, I think I, I focused on explaining myself, explaining the why and trying to really get across why I'm asking or looking at the business from a certain lens. And I think once you did that, then they all appreciate it. I mean, there was definitely some, hey, this Thurman guy is a little bit crazy coming into these countries. But I think at the end of the day, they, they appreciated the energy, the passion. And then it was all about the follow-up and the execution, right? So that is, you know, how you really differentiate, right? If you're going to go in and you're going to do all of these inspections and drill downs and focus in on how you remove friction, your people have to see the follow-up. They have to see you're executing and they have to see that you're fighting the fight for them. Um, but yeah, you got to be authentic, man. You know, people can see through folks that are phony, you know, every single day. I was just going to come back to that point of the removing the friction really it's this outside and approach it, and it, it doesn't matter if you're an expat, if, if, you know, you have been a global leader now for a long, long time and this outside and approach, which, which means also with your major focus of removing the friction of really, it's not, it's not even any different than selling. It's like, what is my buyer or what is my audience going through? What are their problems and challenges? Let me understand it from their point of view and outside in mindset, removing the friction it, those are table stakes in global leadership. I always find a tremendous amount of resistance out around the world if they're like, we're doing this because I said so. It's not the way the world works. No, it never it, has it, been it, the way the world works. Without a doubt. You just don't get by it, right? And you can see it a mile away and you can understand, especially when you've lived overseas and you see either marching orders that don't resonate, don't communicate, you know, or they just say do a hundred percent of what corporate does. That that right. that is the the craziest. You know, I I, I talk the eighty twenty rule, right? Eighty percent you like structure and same common language, same you know material, but give that twenty to twenty five percent flexibility to the local country to customize it to do what they need to do to get across to their customers and to their partners. Um, you can tell a very immature global leader is when they say, we're going to roll out a program, a platform, a message, marketing message, and it's going to be 100% consistent around the globe. Yeah. It's just like, doesn't and work. Then a miracle, and then a miracle happens. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, Mark, we had uh, Mark Robage, who was the original CRO at HubSpot. And they used to have a saying inside HubSpot, in God we trust, for everyone else, bring data. And um, you have a saying where, <laughs> and you have a saying where you like to make decisions, you know, based on data. Can you walk us a little bit through that? Yeah, you bet. I love it, love it, love it. Right. And this is again when you talk about, you know, progression in your career. I would say I was guilty in the beginning of my career, using emotion and gut, and just kind of steamrolling certain subjects and topics because I thought in my belly I knew what the right answer was. And as, as I've evolved in my career and I've been able to have access to more data, access to more tools, being able to look at all of the different kind of what I call points of light coming in, selling, you know, it's still art and science, but the science I think is phenomenal. And what I love about it more than anything is my team has heard me say this a billion times is I hate drama. Right. So mm. I hate having a tough discussion with someone and they get very dramatic and they get very emotional. So what I do is I try to tell the story with data. So if I'm having a hard discussion with a sales manager that's not executing and performing, I'm not emotional. I said, hey, listen, let's just do a quick review. Let's go through the five super important metrics that will be determining your success as a sales leader. And let's use the data 
to see how we're tracking. So let's look at how many pipeline ads you've had. Let's look at how many of your sellers have gone through the enablement. Are you at 100%? Let's look at how many meetings you've done with channel partners. How many face-to-face -face sales calls and presentations and proposals and demos? So on and so forth. So I go through the data and I know the answer that the data has because I've done my due diligence, I've done my work. And at the end of the conversation, there's no emotion. I'm not pounding the table. The person I'm talking to having this tough discussion is not pounding the table. It then kind of spins into this thing is how do we get better? Because this isn't about inspection and micromanagement to make you feel uncomfortable. It's how do we improve? How do we get better at this? Right. And then by having that conversation, I can determine whether it's truly they need to be enabled or trained or guided a little bit more or there's a morale issue, there's an attitude problem, there's an emotional issue, and then you got to make a tougher decision. So I have become a master um, around talking to my team and using the term is let the data tell the story. And when I say become a master, I, I, I try to do it in every meeting I go into. Like every meeting I'm cognizant of what's the data telling us, let's take out the emotion and let data tell the story. And I try to you know, make sure all my, my team does the same things with their leadership and their individual contributors. Um, you know, when you're putting someone on a performance improvement plan, don't be emotional, let the data tell the story, see what the person says in response, and then you can determine what your corrective action is gonna be, whether you're gonna coach, mentor, train them up, or whether you gotta make a more difficult decision. So like, right, I love all these right. new rev tools, you know, these revenue operation tools are just phenomenal that help you give insight into the business. Yeah, and you can have some people even in those conversations that can still, even though you're trying to use data only, where they can stay emotional. And then you realize you may not, you may have some sort of a commitment issue or they may have some sort of a personal issue. Absolutely. And has that happened to you? Yeah, no question about it. I mean, I'll tell you, you know, we talk about what are some of the most painful lessons you've learned in your career and what are some of the biggest mistakes, you know, the biggest mistakes I've ever made are on personnel and not moving people out in an expeditious fashion. I would have the sense, and this is when I wasn't using data. I would have the sense that something wasn't right. They were over-emotional. They were being negative. They had that, what I call the wake of negativity, meaning they're being negative to me, but just think about all their employees and their partners and their customers that they're spreading that wake of negativity. And sometimes I didn't yeah. pull the trigger as fast as I probably should have in regard to, to making a change. And now when I use this data, and if I walk through this data in excruciating detail and I have all my numbers are accurate and the person is still hyper-emotional, dramatic, I know I have an issue. I know I can't get through to this person because they're not listening to the constructive feedback. And I think that's a huge part of it, John, is these conversations using data, right? You have to be constructive and they have to know you're coming from a place of goodness and from a place of trying to coach mentor and teach them not a place of micromanagement and inspection and kind of, you know, yelling at the scoreboard saying, Hey, you did all this activity, but it amounts to crap. You're not a good sales leader. Right? So that to me is critical, but having those non-emotional data-driven discussions, I think you can determine pretty quickly, you know, whether you have the right leader, you know, on board or not. Yeah. yeah. In those conversations, I've always found that at the highest level, you have to, while you're having those discussions, you have to ask yourself, am I, do I have a commitment issue here or do I have a competence issue here? Yep. So am I going to speak to the person's head or am I going to speak to their heart? If I have a 
if it turns out that it, I think I've always had somebody that's really competent and all of a sudden they're not. Now I'm starting to wonder if I have a commitment issue. Is there something going on at home? Is there some personal issue that we don't know about? Something that they want to talk about? You know, what is it? And can I get this person back on track by talking to their heart, you know, instead of their head? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of the beautiful things you can sense from that data driven discussion. And if it goes on that road that there might be a personal situation or something else, that's a great discussion because that person doesn't need to be removed from the organization. They need to be helped and coached and mentored and supported. And then you want to make sure you rally around that. So again, all of these kind of determining factors come out of these data driven discussions. And it takes that raw kind of gut feel that you might've done a little bit uh, in early part of your career, it takes that equation out and allows you to have, I think, super productive discussions, really, really productive discussions. And then Very from cool. there, do you try to break it down to, is it, if it's a competence issue, do you try to break it down to the level of understanding if it's a skill issue or a knowledge yeah. issue or both? Without a doubt, right? So yeah. a great example is, again, I'll kind of use Tenable as a reference point is we've acquired all these different companies and we now are looking at balanced performance, right? Are you selling the full portfolio? Are you selling all the newly acquired technologies? And we have some core reps that are phenomenal at selling risk-based vulnerability management. They've been attainable a while. Their customers know them. They are phenomenal at selling RBVM. But we're now selling exposure management, right? We're looking and, and evaluating risk across the entire attack surface. And you need to be able to sell not just risk-based VM, but you need to be able to sell cloud security, attack surface management, active directory and identity. You need to be able to sell operational technology and awareness. So when I look at the activity, I'm digging in thinking, did we not train this person right? If I see a very capable sales leader that has done great selling core VM, but they're struggling selling the newly acquired products, that's why I want the data-driven discussion to say, well, is it a pipeline issue? Is it a POV issue? Is it an enablement issue? Have they not taken all the training? And as I use the data to dig in, I can then uncover whether like, wow, this person is a phenomenal seller, but we have done a bad job at Tenable training and enabling and making sure they become subject matter experts on the entire you know, platform. And so again, that is one of the most beautiful parts of these data. You know, you're letting data tell the story is you're able to dig in and then coach up and be able to help and assist, you know, where you still have phenomenal employees that maybe aren't trained or aren't as confident because they haven't sold it yet. So you want to work with them, maybe do the first sales call with them, right? Maybe jump on and, you know, do a little role play with them, right? You want to coach them up and make them feel comfortable and confident. And as we all know, once reps, SEs, sales leaders are confident, they deliver the message at a much different level. And where are these conversations typically happening with uh, sales reps? Because I've found that a lot of times first-line sales managers don't like to have those types of conversations. So do you try to get your second-line managers involved with helping the first-line manager? Yeah, have these we do, right? And we've got a, a until they, until they feel trained? Yeah, so we, we had a great leadership team. And we definitely, that second, third-line can have that. But I will tell you, John, we are so focused on that front-line leadership position, right? I think we've all said this. I know Cap, I've heard you say it. That frontline sales manager, in my opinion, is the hardest and most important job in the entire company, right? When you've got yeah. seven or eight percent, yeah, three or four yeah. SEs, marketing people, channel people, that is the quarterback within that local geo. 
So what I try to do is give them confidence that these conversations, if you use the data, if you know the metrics inside and out, if you're confident in the accuracy of the data, so it's not like a bad data discussion, you can take the emotion out of it. And if you do have someone that's hyper-emotional, then you know you've got some issues and some challenges, right? So to me, we really emphasize a lot of training on that frontline sales manager role to make sure that they can have those uncomfortable discussions. Because again, when you're managing a group of 1,000 or 1,200 people, you can't do it all. You need that frontline leader to be able to have those harder discussions. And to me, it's let data help you tell that story. Yeah. 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 Hey, so Johnny, Mark, and Johnny and yeah, Mark, ahead, I, just, I, I would love to, I know we're up against it a little bit, but I would love to get your perspective, Mark. You have such an un- incredible background for our listeners to really understand is that you've been in a direct sales world um, for a, a number of years. You are in a, you've also been in a partner or channel led world or channel driven world, certainly now at Tenable. Would you give us your sp- perspective on, you know, scaling and growing an organization and the nuances and challenges of doing that through a very strong partner community? Could you just give our audience some tips, like from companies' perspective, some of the things they need to think about, from a seller's perspective, some of the things they need to think about as it relates to making sure the partner's you know, successful. Just tell us what your sure. experience has been. Yeah. You got some really great golden nuggets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it, it is, it's kind of a cool background in regard to I've seen both extremes, right? So if you look at earlier in my career, PTC and EMC were very enterprise focused, direct selling, very little partner leverage, very little partner interaction, right? You then saw, you know, EMC and I, I give credit to, you know, one of my closest friends and a friend of all of ours and one of my mentors, John Hanlon, you know, when John Hanlon, who's one of the best sales leaders, you know, that I've ever come across, yep. when he started working at EMC in regard to the commercial space and the OEM agreements that they did with Dell, I think it helped really EMC say how important the channel is. The challenge that Johnny had is you're dealing with all that historical kind of bad behavior yeah. and issues of the direct selling. So it takes a lot of convincing. It takes a lot of being in the trenches together, showing that you're going to do the right thing in regard to deal reg and not take a deal direct. So I've seen that, and that's hard to kind of morph and change into. I will give you the Tenable example. Is Tenable was born and raised as a 100% channel-based company. So today at Tenable, 100% of our business is through the channel. And it is the most beautiful thing I have ever experienced in my career. Right. When, when, when I'm telling you the leverage that we get out of this dedicated over 1900 partners around the globe and we're adding hundreds every quarter, they know we're not going to be dysfunctional. They know we're not going to take business direct. They know that we are going to train and enable them like we do our own sellers. Every bit of content cap that I create for my SEs, for our sellers, for you know, all of our channel, we use that with every single partner. An example, when I was down in Brazil last week, we're doing a product launch, our partners, our customers, employees, all in the same meeting. When we do our training and our sales kickoff, we invite our partners. So the leverage you get is phenomenal. 41% of our Q3 business, 41% of that business was brought to us, what we call channel in, meaning the channel brought that into us. Think about how awesome that is. 
Yeah. Right. And yeah. our goal internally is to get it up to 50 and eventually 60%. But that's the leverage. If you're loyal, if you're ethical, if you don't take business direct, if you communicate and you train the heck out of them, the channel is beautiful. And I'll go back. I know this is long winded, but I'll go back to the, the kind of the John Hanlon experience on how he did such an incredible job at EMC. And now Johnny is CRO Presidio, which is one of the largest bars on the planet. And if you talk to John about his experience, he'll tell you, I wish I grasped the value of these partners early in my career. Mm-hmm. They own the relationships up and down the stack from economic buyer to champions to coaches selling everything. And had he leveraged that, and I think a lot of people look at it as they get older in their career and say, wow, had I leveraged that machine early in my career, you know, who knows what we could have accomplished from growing the business. So a massive believer, I would not. And I know it's challenging depending on the technology. You know, I, in today's world, I would not want to be a chief operating officer at a non-channel oriented company. I just think it gives you so much leverage to scale and grow wow. at a ridiculously fast pace. Yeah, they're the trusted advisor in so many accounts and they've been doing it for decades with the same accounts. So it's, um, if you think you're going to get in between them and that relationship, you know, you got something else coming. To you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Very true. Hey, Johnny, are you ready for uh, just a couple of quick takeaways and then? Uh, yeah, a couple of quick yeah. takeaways and uh, then you should do the rapid fire. You got it, brother. Hey, so. Um, what I loved about what I heard today, first of all, so many golden nuggets, such a great experience from you and like utilizing all those experiences that you have. I loved how you, your main themes that I heard you talk about is removing friction, simplifying the business, uh, removing obstacles for sales teams. And if they're sales leaders and, and senior level executives listening to that, I think it's really, really powerful. You talked about your you know, influential leadership versus command and control and really focusing on the why. That was a big takeaway for me. You, you, you talked about the three H's, which I loved, which was the head, heart, and hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also love, I, I, I hope that people were listening, enablement reporting directly to, and it doesn't really matter what's on the org chart. What I heard you say is do not abdicate that. If you are the, if you are in charge of the sales organization, do not abdicate your responsibility to own that and make it a strategic lever for you. Uh, you talked about data reducing drama. I'm actually going to write that down because I, I think that that is incredibly powerful. We talked about a lot of stuff, but you know, the thing we ended up here Johnny McMahon was, we talked about, you know, how you are driving and leveraging the channel uh, from 41%, like you just said that 41% of your business is coming partner in, which is just unbelievable. And you're moving that to upwards around 50%, uh, which is uh, incredible. Congratulations. Johnny, did you have some additional ones? Yeah, just a big, the big, really big takeaway when you listen to Mark is simplification, you know, simplification of communication, simplification in his organization so he can drive up productivity, simplification in sales messaging. It's, there's, there's a big, big message there of what Mark likes to do is take, you know, complex things and break them down into their simple terms so people can function a lot, lot quicker and a lot easier. And overall, the organization becomes a lot more productive. Beast. Absolute beastly. Hey, Mark, we're going to um, do a little rapid fire here and um, yeah. just a couple of fun little questions that we do. Ideal right. day off work. 
Ideal day of work. Um, Got to be okay. on a jet ski, buddy. You FaceTimed me on a jet ski, which was pretty legit. hundred <laughs> percent. So ideal uh, day off of work. So we get up early, get an amazing workout in, uh, do a little sauna, a little cold plunge. Yes. Then get on the jet ski, do a little boating, uh, do a little barbecue with friends and family, my wife and my three kids and my parents and my five brothers and sisters. Uh, and then maybe late afternoon, have maybe a cold Bud Light to relax on, and this is all on Cape Cod, right? All on uh, Bayview Beach in Cape Cod. That to me is my ideal day off. Living large. Now I you love got that, that cold plunge. Is that a separate cold plunge? You're jumping in the in the ocean. What are you doing for the cold? I plunge? am. So when I'm on the Cape, when I'm on the Cape, I'm doing the cold plunge in the ocean, which is awesome. And then I got a little cold plunge uh, at the house uh, in Boston. There. So uh, the sauna, awesome. the cold plunge has become like a a phenomenal staple when I'm not traveling, which is just like a, an incredible experience. We're going to have you back so on. And, for you. Yeah. We're going to have, we're going to have him on a panel, Johnny, when we talk about cold plunge and sauna for good mental health and physical health. <laughs> Love it. Hey, uh, right. favorite, um, favorite meal, brother. Favorite meal, simple, a ribeye steak, Ooh. beautiful baked potato, no sour cream, uh, <laughs> asparagus and a beautiful green salad. That's right. You sure you're not from the Midwest, buddy? That was a that I was expecting to hear lobster and a little bit of uh, seafood. No, forget that shellfish. Man. As uh, I said, I was in Latam last week. I might have had five ribeyes in Argentina and Brazil combined. Oh, so, good call. I hey, how about my, a favorite movie, ribeyes. brother? Favorite movie. Oh, boy. Favorite movie. Uh, well, there's actually two of them that uh, I, I think I've memorized everything. One is Wall Street and the second one is Rocky. Rocky one, by the way. Uh, those are Wall Street Love is uh, when I was coming out of college, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be Gordon Gecko or Bud Fox, but you know, we all kind of come together on those things. And then Rocky, I just love it. My favorite. Do you uh, identify more favorite. with Rocky or Apollo Creed? Rocky, my man. Rocky. <laughs> you know, no question about it. Well done. How about best concert? Oh, hands down, without a doubt, Foo Fighters. Greatest concert, wow. greatest experience. And it was a cool story. I had an employee that was next door neighbors of David Grohl in Southern California. So when they played at Fenway wow. Park, we were able to hang out with them in the locker room in Fenway for two hours before the show. Had a couple of drinks with Dave Grohl and the whole Foo Fighter band was behind stage. And they are my favorite band of all time. So without a doubt, Foo Fighters in Fenway was the coolest concert I've ever been to. And I was with my, my younger brother, Paul, which was special. So it was awesome. That's awesome. How about, brother, how about a favorite charity? So a couple favorite charities. So my wife, Wendy, is a massive supporter and has been a big sister. So that's something here in the Boston community uh, we're both very involved in. Um, the other one is every family has been impacted by, by cancer. There's a great uh, organization in Boston called the Ellie Fund, E-L-L-I-E Fund, that focuses on women going through best breast cancer and being able to support those families coming in and helping with, you know, whether it's doing laundry or doing some food shopping or helping aid and assist, you know, those families that are going through that hard time. Um, so those are a couple of things that are, are near and dear to, to myself and my, my wife, Wendy's heart. Awesome, brother. We'll make sure we put those, <clears throat> we'll put those links into the, into the um, show notes. And I'm going to just wrap up real quick here and say my goodbyes. Johnny will wrap us up for the segment, but Mark, um, <clears throat> thank you for the time spending uh, you're one of my favorite leaders on the planet. You're a great friend and, and uh, you're just an unbelievable leader. And I thought about doing this before, like last night, thinking about 
just the amount of respect that I have for you for how long you've been leading from the front is is really really and at, at a very very high level so congratulations continued success and thanks for being with us brother thank you cap back at you my man one of my favorite human beings on the planet john cap so i appreciate the kind words same buddy hey mark you're such a consummate professional such an amazing leader you've done so much for so many people and i want to thank you so much for participating on the podcast thank you i'm very very grateful to have you Johnny Mac, thank you. And, uh, you know, I, I know you get this joke all the time. You are considered the GOAT. And I think, you know, your testament uh, to John McMahon is you look at all the incredible world-class leaders and private and publicly traded companies that John McMahon has had his fingerprints on, has led and guided these individuals, a true testament to, to arguably, you know, the greatest uh, SaaS enterprise software sales leader of all time, my man. You're the best. Thank you. Might have just might have just been good recruiting, brother. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's where it all starts, my man. You're only as good as your team. Exactly. Well done, gentlemen. Well, thank you well so done. much, Mark. And thanks to all our listeners for another episode of Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.